We're in this series called Christmas Playlist, and this song is literally on Live Oak's Christmas Playlist. You can access it through Spotify or the Live Oak app, and it's a pretty significant Christmas carol, and we're going to talk about it a little bit today because the story behind it is pretty significant. I, I love Christmas music. I love music, uh, period. Music is powerful. When I was in college, uh, I had to give a, like in communication class, a speech, a five-minute speech about life would be better if, and then you give a speech about whatever you think would make life better. I, mine was, I think life would be better with a soundtrack. Like if you're out running, just having music, I mean, we do it. We put headphones in. We do it while we drive. James Bond comes on the radio. You're going to drive a little bit different than if Yanni's on. Yanni, what an obscure reference. You know, like, like, like it's it just music changes the tone. That's why when we shop, there's music playing in the background. That's why movies are so careful to not just put songs in there, but to do a musical score that changes the way we feel about things. Well, our Christmas playlist could really be something that helps us engage with God this Christmas, or it can just become background music, elevator music. There's always more going on behind the scenes than meets the eye with some of the songs that we hear or sing. Yesterday, I heard this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, twice, once in a store, kind of a background instrumental version that was really making me want to leave that store. The other was at a gymnastics kind of showcase, or I don't know what they call it. My kids were doing gymnastics, and they were showing off what they learned that year. And they had Christmas music kind of playing on a leap as they, loop as they went to different stations. And the song would come on, they let it play. song would come on, they let it play. This song literally came on. It didn't even get through the first two lines. And somebody went, fast forward, next track. And moved on to the next one. I'm like, but I'm talking about that song tomorrow. Don't do this. Don't do this to us. And instead, it was Run, Run, Reindeer, uh, some kind of Christmas song that is about reindeer versus Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which is such an impactful song. And if you ever stop and listen to the lyrics, it's amazing. And it's a song that's older than our country. It's older than the United States of America. And what we're saying in this series is, if you would pay attention to this song that's been around for so long, there's still something relevant. There's even something impactful for you, but you can miss it. It can be background music. Here's the challenge we're giving everybody. Today, engage with a God who engages with you. That's the daily challenge challenge we're asking you to take every day through this Christmas season. Today, I will engage with a God who intentionally engages with me. And music can be a tool to do that. You can listen to the words and reflect on them, and there's something significant about what's going on behind it because there's always more going on behind the scenes. This song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, was written by Charles Wesley in 1739. His haircut may have gone out of style. The musical style it was written in originally may have gone out of style. But this song, years later, math is hard, I'm trying to figure out how many years it was. Less than 300, more than 200. Years later, we still sing it. It's made its way into pop culture. One of the most familiar and famous kind of Christmas time movies, It's a Wonderful Life. In the closing scene, one of the songs they sing before they sing Old Anxiety, they sing Hark the Herald Angel Sing as people are flooding in uh, to George Bailey's house. It's in there. It's made it into way to other Christmas classics. Barbie a Christmas Carol, it's in there. I didn't even know Barbie had a Christmas Carol. Like, uh, anyway, there's so much we could say about that. But one of the most familiar and iconic ways it shows up is in another animated, not Barbie, 
but Charlie Brown Christmas special. That aired, um, I can't remember the year it came on the, thank you, 1965. All right, be on the steady. I got to have fact checks and feed me stuff. Uh, 1965, it came on the air. Charles Schultz was drawing the cartoon, and he was approached of, hey, what about t- putting this into an animated Christmas program to put on TV? He was excited about it. However, he insisted on one thing. It had to serve one purpose. It had to be about something, namely, the true meaning of Christmas. Otherwise, Schultz said, why bother doing it? His collaborators, Lee uh, Mendelson and Bill Menendez, uh, animator, executive producer, ask him, are you sure you want to go as hard this direction you're thinking about? Because they wanted to include Hark the Herald Angels Sing when they gather around the tree and this little pitiful tree that they show a little love to and all of a sudden it turns into this great Christmas tree, which is obviously kind of a metaphor for Charlie Brown and where he is and it's this great idea of how we treat people and how we view Christmas. They include Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and that's what they sing at the end. It was sung by a kids' choir. I believe it was in, in, the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. They found a kids' choir at a church to sing this, and every year it shows up on TV in this special, or on iTunes, or on Netflix, wherever you watch it. It's in there. The other thing he decided to include, and they said, are you sure you want to include something like that? And actually quoting the Bible in this, he said, if we don't do it, who will? And so they include the scene where Linus stands up when Charlie Brown is just frustrated without Christmas. And he says, can, Charlie Brown yells, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? Linus says, sure, I can. And he walks out, he drops his blanket. There's a lot of symbolism there. He drops his blanket. And all of a sudden, this insecure kid who holds on to a security blanket drops his security blanket and talks about Jesus who showed up. And he quotes Luke chapter 2, verse for verse. Everybody was worried that Coca-Cola, who was the title sponsor, would say no, and if they didn't, they were afraid that the network would, but surprisingly, both said, we love it, include it. And it's still around years later. My kids have already watched it once this year. When Linus reads from Luke chapter 2, it creates one of the most magical two minutes in all of TV animation, the producer says. And in writing about this specific cartoon, a guy named Michael Chabon, I don't know him, but I read this quote by him, and he wrote a book called, he talks about this, in a book called Manhood for Amateurs. And he describes himself as a Jewish, liberal, agnostic, empiricist. Not sure what all those terms mean and what he means by that. That's how he describes himself. But he says, this moment in TV impacted me. I still know the chapter and verse of the Gospel of Luke by heart. And no amount of subsequent disillusionment with the behavior of self-described Christians or with other progressive commercialization of Christmas that in 1965 had already broken Charlie Brown's heart has robbed the central miracle of Christianity of its power to move me the way any truly great story can. And this one moment, and that Hark the Herald Angels Sing moment where they sing at the end as the credits roll, still lives on. And hundreds of years later, or earlier, Charles Wesley had sat down to write this song. Actually, originally it was a poem. And it was published in 1739, in his, under the topic of Hymn for Christmas Day. The opening stanza looks a little bit different today. Originally it said, Hark how the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings instead of newborn kings. And it, two things happened. One, people said, what's a welkin? Is that like a kind of grape juice? What is that? I don't know what a welkin is. It's a munchkin, a leprechaun? Like, I, I don't know. What's a welkin? And then 
uh, George Whitfield, who was one of his students, and actually they kind of came to blows about this, changed that line to glory to the newborn king, and he talked about the deity of Jesus showing up in the manger, and it kind of made it more kind of Christmas-focused. And they actually got to, you know, I don't know if it was a creative thing or a theological thing, but they got an ends over it. But this opening line, hark the herald angels sing, hark means pay attention, hark, I've got something to say. Herald angels, herald's not a name of an angel. Herald's not a name of a person. It is, that's a different way you spelled herald. Herald is someone who shows up to make an announcement. The announcing angel said, pay attention, there's something you need to know. Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, and this phrase, God and sinners reconciled. Something's about to happen. This was written a year after Charles Wesley had become a follower of Jesus. But he had been a student of Jesus his whole life. He had been an activist of Jesus his whole life. He grew up in a home, one of 19 children, his brother John as well, trained in the Bible, taught to follow God and love God. And they did a lot of good things for God, including at one point they were going to Oxford and were part of this thing called a holy club, where it's a club about God. Sounds like a really fun college fraternity, right? Like it's a little different, but that's what they're doing in college at Oxford, this prestigious university, thinking about holy things. Sounds like pretty good guys. Goes on a mission trip to Georgia with his brother John. And as they're there, he even says, I feel like I'm trying to do all these things to serve God. And I'm trying to really live out my faith. But the problem is I feel so disconnected to it. I don't feel like I'm engaging with God. I feel like I'm engaging with activity. Was it kind of what was going on in their lives? On the, about the experience, his brother John, who was with them on this mission trip to Georgia, He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Like he believed, he had this understanding about who Jesus was, but he felt like even though I know about him, I feel like I don't know him. Their answer to that question that John Wesley wrote about in this inner angst that they were dealing with came shortly after with some friends of ours, theirs who were Moravians, started talking a lot about salvation, being coming into a relationship with Jesus by faith, because of grace. That it's not what you do for God that gets you favor with God, it's what God has done for you. And they just couldn't wrap their heads around it. They, they said, but we've done so much. We know so much. We could teach classes on this. We have taught classes on this. We go to tell people on the other side of the world about this. Why is it, doesn't that count for anything? It's like, yeah, it's great, but That's not how you enter a relationship with Jesus. And their friends had influence, and then shortly after that, on May 21st, 1738, Charles Wesley decided, from now on, it is because of grace and by faith that I will relate to Jesus. And on that moment, that phrase, God and sinners reconciled, Charles Wesley believes was true for him. It was not about the resume he had put together, all the good things he had done, and even how smart he was about his faith. And it was, he wrote in a journal, it was as if the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And what was said about him by a biographer, they had not Christ, or rather Christ did not have them. They lived by good works, not by faith. And many of us who grew up around faith and knowing about God could fall into the same trap of trying to put together a resume 
to impress God and do things for him to get his favor. But what he says to us is, one, you can't put together a resume good enough, but I can. You have my favor, and I'm giving you my grace. That is the good news of Christmas. That God, what we've said is, don't let anything keep you from engaging with the God that engages you. But here's the good news of Christmas. We can do that because God didn't let anything keep him from engaging you. What we celebrate at Christmas is God said, you can't put together a resume good enough, but I can, so I'm going to show up. I'm going to show up so God and sinners can be reconciled. John chapter 1, the apostle John writes about it. You know, if you're going to read about the Christmas story, there's typically two places you go, Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Or Luke chapter 1 and 2, they kind of describe that. Matthew talks a lot about Joseph and how he's trying to wrap his head around it. Luke talks about what Linus was reading. Showing up to the shepherds and Mary trying to wrap her head around it. But John, who was not there at the manger, who was not around when Jesus was born or even growing up, but 30 years later was approached by Jesus and Jesus said, follow me. And he said, okay. And he did and he watched him closely for years. And he said, look, I didn't see the newborn king, but I know he's the king of kings. I know that this is God with us. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, meaning Jesus, and though the word was made through him, the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. Like, the creator showed up, and nobody knew he was the creator. They thought he was a teacher, or even a nut. They didn't know who he was. He came to that which was his own, because everybody was created by God and for a relationship with God, but his own did not receive him. Then he says this. He talks about God and sinners reconciled. This is how it happens. And this, Charles Wesley wrote this Christmas carol a year after this moment in his life happened. A very new believer. It's very fresh for him. And these words just start coming out about what happened in this relationship with God. And John, and I think this must have been on his mind, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Are these key words stand out? To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believe that he is who he says he is, and you believe what he says is true about you, your deep need for him, and you receive that as a gift, that is where God and sinners are reconciled, and no longer are you a sinner. You are a sinner saved by grace who is a child of God. He adopts you into his family. There's no resume to put together. There's not an application process for approval. Actually, there is. It's saying, I desperately need you, and I can't do it on my own. Great. It's time for a gift exchange. You know, no one has to teach a kid how to unwrap a gift. You do have to teach them which gifts to unwrap and which ones not to unwrap and when to unwrap it and stuff like that. But really, if you put a box with a gift inside with wrapping paper and you put it in a kid's hand, they figure out real quickly, I'm going to open this and I'm going to take this. And then as you get older, you do the same thing. I'm going to open this and I'm going to take this and I'm going to look. Thank you so much. How did you know? And I will either return it, re-gift it, or enjoy it and make it your own, right? Like that's what we do with gifts. Somehow this gift is hard for us to wrap our head around. 
Charles Wesley, for many years, knew a lot about God, but he didn't know him personally. But one day he figured out, this is really simple, this gift that he holds out. He's not asking for anything in return except my life. Here, here's my mess. Thank you for your grace. Receive and believe equals become. And become a child of God. What, a, what an honor. Then he says this in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word, the word there, the Greek word is the word logos. And basically, have you ever looked at someone and you're kind of like, hey, I'm not sure what's happening right now. You need to use your words. I'm sorry, I have kids. You need to use your words. Um, what are you thinking? Has anyone ever asked you that? Hey, um, what are you thinking right now? Some of us love that question. Some of us don't. I won't divide by male or female or age or anything like that. I'll just say, some of us like that question. Some of us don't. But if you've ever asked somebody the question, what are you thinking? Jesus is the answer to that question. If you want to know, what is God thinking? What is God thinking about me? What is God thinking about our world? And who is he? If you want to know what God is thinking, he is the word, the statement. God, I mean, the statement of who God is, the expression of God, became flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. Here's how Eugene Peterson translates it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into a neighborhood in Bethlehem. He moved into a neighborhood in Nazareth. He moved in close proximity with these disciples who followed him around and people who were skeptics and people who were doubters and people who were failures and people who were a mess. And all of them got to be up close and personal and thinking and say, I wonder what God is thinking. And Jesus said, if you want to know what he's thinking, look at me. Look at what I say and look at how I treat people and the value I place on them and what I'm willing to do for anyone and everyone who would receive this gift. Watch me. That's what God's thinking. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Matthew says it this way, all this took place about the birth of Jesus, took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive, check, give birth to a son, check, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What we celebrate at Christmas is the withness of God. God is with us so we can be with him. It's the verse from Hark the Herald Angels Sing that, you know, you can blow past it so quickly and not think about the significance of what this means. There's more behind this song than meets the eye. Don't turn it into a spiritual karaoke or a kind of a Christmas kind of sing-along. Think about this truth that John, or excuse me, Charles Wesley was so impacted by. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. God of the universe says, clothe me in flesh. Put me into your skin, into your shoes, into your world so I can experience fully what it's like to grow up, to be rejected, to have pain, to suffer, to have loss, to have emotions. Let me experience that. And what that means is we don't just have the sympathy of Jesus, we have the empathy. He understands. He says, I get it. What you're going through right now, he goes, I get that. Get it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate. Incarnate incarnation means God with us. He showed up. It's not God at a distance, it's God right here with us, incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Pleased to show up as a man 
to be with us, people, and to walk in our shoes so people could walk up and say, hey, God, what are you thinking? What do you think about me? What do you think about the world? What do you think about them? Jesus are Emmanuel, which means God with us. John goes on in his gospel to say, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. What we celebrate at Christmas, but it's not just about Christmas, throughout his whole incarnation, his own showing up, it was God with us. He was Jesus. He was God made known. Because it is possible that as God has made him known for us or for Charles Wesley or for anybody to know a lot about God and not actually know him. You could miss it. You could pass a test in religious history. You could even pass a New Testament seminary theological study class. You could, you could do really well on knowing about him and not know him personally. That was Charles Wesley's story. Until one day, Jesus didn't just show up then in the manger. He showed up in his life. He received him by faith, and because the grace of God showed up in him, it changed him. Charles Wesley would go on to write 6,000 or more hymns, many that are still sung today. He and his brother, key founders and influencers in the Methodist movement that still exists today. He traveled hundreds, some people believe thousands of miles, just talking about Jesus and teaching what he experienced and what he knew to be true. And if Jesus is God made known, and we need to know him personally, not just know about him, whenever you read something like this in John chapter 1, you could go back, go back and read it today and ask these questions. Anytime you read anything about Jesus in Scripture, ask yourself these three questions. This, what I just read, what does this tell me about who God is? Because if Jesus is God made known, what does this tell me about who God is? I can know who God is by looking at Jesus. What does this tell me about who God is? Secondly, what does this tell me about what he thinks about me. Hey God, what are you thinking? Specifically, what are you thinking about me? Look to see what Jesus says about people like you. And then, if you know who God is and what, what he thinks about you, the third question is this. What are the implications of that for me? If that's who God is and that's what he thinks about me, what does that mean for me today? How do I respond to him? What do I do with this? What do I do with the gift and entering this relationship, like Charles Wesley had that moment on May 21st, 1738. When was your day where you received that gift? Or what does it mean each and every day to engage the God who is engaging with you? The Apostle Paul thought about the same idea the same, in, a, in a different passage, but the same kind of concept. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the expression of the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, everything's been created by him, all things were also created for him. His end goal is to reconcile all things to himself. God and sinners reconciled. Verse 17, it says this, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. Use it as a prompt and a cue in your life. If things feel like they're falling apart in your life 
or in the world, ask yourself the question, is Jesus at the center here? Because he is the one that holds all things together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. He has one end goal. He has one objective and one purpose that in the end he would have supremacy. He would be first and at the center. And for many of us, that's why we're reluctant to accept the gift. I like being at the center, not just of attention. I like being the center of my life. I like being the center of making my plans. I like to be the one in control. But Jesus says, you're in my seat. That's where I am supposed to be. But I will not force you out of your seat. I will wait patiently, just like he did for Charles Wesley. Verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, meaning Jesus. All the fullness of God. This is the great mystery, the thing that's hard to wrap our head around. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Well, how does that work? I don't know. But the danger is you start making him 50% God and 50% man, and then he's really not anything or either. But God had all his fullness. He was always fully God. For this reason, that through him, to reconcile to himself all things, God and sinner reconciled, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God and sinners reconciled. And when I thought about this, it's hard for me because my family, uh, our, our two kids, John and Gracia, are adopted. We adopted them. About five years ago, we went and met them for the first time. Very surreal moment to meet your kids who are already born and have some baggage, some history in their life, and to show up and meet them for the first time, because I've already got my history and my baggage, so we just kind of put it all together. But the first time, I remember standing out the doors of this orphanage about to walk in going, man, this is going to be, I don't know what. I don't even have the emotion or the words to think about this. And we were making this trip to meet them for the first time. We met them for a day or two, and, and then we went to the embassy and applied for a visa, and then we came back. They're from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we had to, it was a long trip over, a trip back, and we had to wait for our visa. And we waited and waited and waited. But a month later, we went over to get them. And we waited and waited and waited while we were there, and then eventually came home. And I remember that first trip trying to figure out, what's this going to be like? And we got on this conference call with three other adopting families that are going, the kids in the same orphanage, and we were about to go over. And they were doing this trip, this call to talk about the, the logistics of the trip. But I quickly learned it wasn't about logistics, it was about liability. Because what they're saying is, hey, on this trip, you need to prepare in this way, but there are some things that can go wrong. There are some things that will go wrong. It could impact you financially. It can impact you spiritually. And it can impact you emotionally. It can impact you physically. There's a lot of disease that goes around. Malaria is real prevalent in that country. There's all kinds of things and waterborne and airborne kind of things that you can catch. And by the way, it's pretty unstable in some pockets. And, you know, if, as long as you're not over here, you'll be okay. But even when you're not there, just be very careful. Don't take pictures out in public, uh, you know, be aware of how you interact with authorities. They don't have necessarily a chain of command. Everyone thinks they're in command. And just be careful about all this stuff. And they're going through all these things that could go wrong. And, I mean, initially, as a, as a germaphobe already, I'm going, for the love of Purell, what am I getting myself into? And I'm like, I'm nervous about this. And how many shots do I have to get? And how many pills do I have to take every day? And all this stuff's going on. And by the end of the call, when they're talking about the financial things, and, 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 and they're right. I mean, that country is a dumpster fire of a country. It's a mess. They've got people in charge that just won't give up their, 
they're, they're being in charge, and there are people that aren't in charge that think they are, and they're going to fight with the ones who are. Recently, a bunch of UN peacekeepers were recently killed. Like, there's all this stuff going on in this country, and I'm thinking, maybe they're trying to talk me out of this, and I think they're making a strong, a strong case. Maybe we shouldn't go. Like, maybe we should just send, like, sponsor them. Like, we do that with Compassion International. We sponsor them. Maybe we should just sponsor these kids. I, I'm not sure if I want to go. By the end, because they're just making a case for this is going to be tough. And then she said, here's the guiding phrase you want to keep in mind through all of these things. Some will happen, a lot of them won't. But some of them will, and some of them did. They said, just remember, in the end of this process, you will have your kids, and you will bring them home. Oh, okay. Well, that brings me back to why I'm doing this. There's value in these kids, and that's what I'm committed to. This is what Jesus does with us. Because if you think about what he went through and endured, what he gave up, to step into our skin. Most of us have lived enough life where life's hard. I don't like pain. I don't like rejection. I don't like loss. I don't like emotional roller coasters. I don't like the mess of the world we live in. But Jesus says, I'll give up this perfection to step into this mess so you can experience what I get to experience in eternity. And I will take your mess that you've created And I'll adopt your sinfulness, your brokenness, and your shame so in the the end, I can adopt you. See, when he adopts us as a child of God, he first has to adopt our sinfulness and our brokenness and our shame because that's where he reconciles things to himself through his blood shed on the cross. And if he doesn't take our sin and shame... We have no hope. I get that I need it. I'm just not sure why he did it. So what does this tell me about what he thinks about me? What does it tell me about what he thinks about you? What great value he places on your life to say, even though you've rejected me, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to adopt your mess to make it my own so in the end I can make you my own. How much must he love us? Because through it all, it had to be the guiding thought. In the end, I'll have my kids, and I'll bring them home. And he has this gift of grace, of getting what we don't deserve, and mercy, not getting what we do deserve, that we receive by faith. So what we're saying in this is this, again, every day, this Christmas season, engage with the God who every day I believe is engaging with you because God didn't let anything keep him from engaging with you. We have evidence of a manger, we have evidence of a cross, and thankfully we have evidence of an empty tomb that this wasn't just a good man who died for a good cause. This was a God-man who died for not very good people so they could be his kids. So what I would challenge you to do in this Christmas season is when Hark the Herald Angels sing comes on, stop and listen to those words and recognize that it was a year after Charles Wesley had opened this gift and he was so overwhelmed he writes this poem that several hundred years later we're still singing it. And it gets sung in It's a Wonderful Life and it gets sung in A Charlie Brown Christmas and it gets sung in Barbie's Christmas Carol. It gets sung at United on the Music as you're playing, it gets sung at the gymnastics meet. 
even though they skipped over it. It gets sung here today by many of us who realize God gave us a gift I did not deserve, and I am so grateful. And I will engage every day with the God who engaged with me, because why would I pass up that opportunity to engage with the God of the universe who didn't pass up me when he really could have? To help you with this idea of engaging with the God who engages you, we've created these lock screens for phones. We're a very technology society now. You may not be, but most of us are. So on mine, it's on there to remind me every day. Today, I will engage with the God who intentionally engages with me. You can get it off the Live Oak app. There's a thing there for Christmas playlists. It's got a bunch of resources, including the reading plan, four different versions of a lock screen. You can also go to Live Oak's Facebook page. We have the tendency to go into autopilot and go through the motions. Set yourself some reminders to engage with God who never needs a reminder to engage with you. He is active every day. You're on his radar because you're in his family if you've received this gift by grace. The other way you can uh, intentionally engage with a God who engages with you is next week we're going to do communion together as a church. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's a way to remember that the symbols of our faith aren't just a manger, but it's it's a cross that he gave his body and he shed his blood so you could be reconciled with him. We'll do that. Christmas Eve is a way to do that, to stop on a day and together just recognize the light of the world came into the world and we do recognize it. And I never want to miss it. And I want to celebrate that. And you actually have a way to help us meaningfully engage with singing that night with worship. We're going to sing Christmas songs. And so the question we're asking you is, what are some songs that you would like to have on your Christmas playlist on Christmas Eve? What could we sing together that would remind us together and encourage us? The story behind these songs, not just the ones who wrote them, but the story of Christmas, that God's always at work behind the scenes. What would help you engage God that night in a worshipful way to remember that God remembered you and he pursued you and he died for you because he loved you? You can vote and actually tell us. There's a song poll. You can submit it. You have till Wednesday, I think, the 13th. Is that the 13th? You have till this midweek this week to vote. You can do it on the Live Oak app or on the Facebook page. Please, no songs about reindeer, snowmen, or Santa Claus. We, we, want, we, we want songs that remind us of God with us. Hark the Herald Angels Sing is a great one. Oh, come all you faithful, we sang it today. That's a great one. What is it you would love to sing that would help you that night? Remember, there's always a God at work behind the scenes who engages with you, and he wouldn't let anything keep him from that. Let's stand for closing prayer. Hey, if you're a volunteer at Live Oak, if you serve in any area in any way, uh, we want to say thank you. We do it every Christmas. We have some uh, volunteer shirts out there. If you don't volunteer, please applaud the ones who do and uh, know that that's not a store. We're not selling those. Uh, We want to thank those who are serving and we can't thank you enough. You're part of anything that God does through this church. You're a part of it by your service in whatever way you serve and we're grateful And I'm also excited that you're serving because I believe it will impact your faith. I think serving others is catalytic to your faith. So thank you for serving. It makes a difference. It means a lot to me. And I think it means a lot to your faith. Heavenly Father, thanks that we um, are the beneficiaries of being reconciled to the God of the universe, not because we put together a resume or we got your attention or we got your favor. We have that already. 
but you wouldn't let anything keep you from engaging with us. So you stepped into our brokenness and our sin and our mess of a world, into the sin and brokenness and mess of, of my life. And you said, I'll adopt that to my life so I can adopt you into my family. Father, if any of us are, are fuzzy on that or not sure or we have doubts, help us to settle that, to receive this gift, to do like Charles Wesley said, I know the day and the date, I know when it happened. I'm, I'm convinced, I'm, a, I'm sure. There's lots of things in this world that create doubts about our standing with you and many of mine are self-inflicted. God, I'm grateful for your grace and mercy that showed up in a manger and showed up on a cross and showed up in a tomb that it's not there anymore. That love and that grace and that mercy walked out and the God of the universe made possible the greatest gift exchange in all of history. We now know what you're thinking because if Jesus showed up, Jesus is God made known. And Jesus, we are so grateful. Help us not to miss it and to engage with you in every day and every moment we can because you didn't let anything keep you from engaging with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for being here.